This episode was made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to episode 156 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week, with the help of special guest Remy Nakamura, we discuss the second half of Matt Ruff's 2016 novel, Lovecraft Country. So our guest this week is Remy Nakamura. Remy is a writer of weird, dark, and Lovecraftian fiction. You can find his stories in Escape Pod, Pseudopod, and a variety of anthologies, including Ride the Starwind Cthulhu, Space Opera, and the Cosmic Weird, and Swords vs. Cthulhu. He is also a wonderful human being, and I'm happy to call him a friend. Welcome back, Remy. Wow, that was a really nice intro. It's <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's really good to be back, uh, Luke and James. Thanks for coming back. I can't wait to hear... Um all of your input on Lovecraft, because if you've listened to the last two episodes, listener, uh, Luke and I have confessed that we don't, you know, we're not super well versed in sort of his, his like background and everything that, that's gone on with him. And uh, just from that intro, you know that Remy's going to be. That's funny. <laughs> when I was in high school, uh, I turned into my, uh, in my senior year, a voluntary um, story that I had written uh, and it was Lovecraftian, and it was crap. It was, and my teacher told me <laughs> so. Uh, oh man, <laughs> he was not very nice about it. Uh, so here wow. I am writing Lovecraft <laughs> decades later. Yeah, you showed Still. you showed him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so longtime listeners may remember that Remy came on for both Annihilation and The Shining. Uh, so he is a three-peat guest of ours, and you know, honestly, I think you provide a really nice sort of calming energy to the podcast when i am like going off on some sort of rambling high energy rant (laughs) (laughs) i think it's good so i did want to ask you uh your history first off before we get into lovecraft country you said that you wrote some lovecraftian fiction before obviously i listed some anthologies and things with some lovecraftian cosmic horror what is your Mm -hmm. relationship to lovecraft the writer, and then beyond that, Lovecraftian fiction? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I think I discovered Lovecraft uh, in high school. Uh, I remember uh, browsing through the bookstore. There was this one set of paperbacks that had these really cre- creepy kind of grayscale, black and white art on it, but then something in the art would be red, like some eyeball mm. or or blood or something in it was, you know, high contrast red. And uh, so, of course, that appealed to me. And I think I brought one of those. So the cover sold you. Yeah. Yeah. The cover <laughs> the cover is probably what got me into Lovecraft. Um, but uh, actually, it's funny. I think the uh, covers had absolutely zero to do with the content. Uh, mm-hmm. They were just scary. Like there might be a spider on the cover, <laughs> but no mm-hmm. spider stories inside mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you, do either of you know, uh, did Lovecraft have like a specific artist he would use? Because I know like the imagery is very iconic. So I wondered, does he have like longtime collaborators or was it sort of just a a mix? As far as I know, he didn't really work with any directly with visual artists. Um, There are like a couple of sketches from his own uh, letters, 
uh, or maybe like journal entries or something. Like there's this kind of very, I don't know, like a a sketch of Cthulhu, for example, that mm-hmm. uh, I think is attributed to to Lovecraft, and it's not very expertly drawn. It's kind of like um, it's know, just so indescribable. Sketch small things, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I could describe it. I think. It's, it's... <laughs> so at some point, you must have found out that he had this uh, really sordid history uh, of being a racist, and did that affect? How you felt about his work? I mean, how did you feel when you found that out? Yeah, I'm not sure. Over the past um, 10 years or so, I've written a number of horror stories and sold some. And uh, I've started doing this thing where I do um, kind of, uh, I'll take a Lovecraftian uh, iconic story and kind of take it down. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like oh. nice. uh, so for example, um, uh, I have one that's based on the Dunwich Horror. Um, and in the Dunwich Horror, the only woman who appears in it is off screen and she's making basically like, sh- she's like a baby maker. Um, mm, like wow. it's, it's horrible. Like it's, it's so sexist and all the, the main characters, both evil and, and good are, are, um, men. And so, uh, I wrote a story where all of the main characters were, were women and all, they had total agency and the men were more kind of supporting roles are off screen. I want to say that the the first part of my uh, experience with Lovecraft was just really kind of um, enjoying the how I felt when I read the existential horror aspects. Um, but then I started encountering all these great, uh, mostly short story authors uh, who were doing this interrogation of of Lovecraft. Ellen Datlow's got a couple of anthologies. Paula Garan uh, has, a, I think, the the new Cthulhu or new weird. Um, so anyhow, there are, there are a number of these great um, um, anthologies, and there are basically other authors really interrogating and uh, challenging the racism, the sexism, the xenophobia um, that's uh, just woven tightly through uh, all of uh, Lovecraft stories, and they and they tell good stories. They're a lot of fun, um, and so I think that it's you know how you can change the. This gives me hope, uh, ironically, that that you can change the world through your writing, right? And so, people writing Lovecraft. It wasn't people talking about the racism or sexism in Lovecraft that made me realize that. It was the people who were just writing. Uh, stories in a Lovecraftian vein, but undermining and and, and challenging the sexism and racism in it. Uh, That changed my my view of it all. So before we get too far away from it, what was the title of that story you referenced? Uh, Oh, your story. You mean like, uh, oh, my story. (laughs) Uh, That one's called the Dan no Uchi Horror. And it's a, that's a pun on the Dunwich Horror. And it's, it's actually really, uh, it's a bilingual pun. And it's really cool because dan no uchi means within the altar. Uh, so <laughs> it works really nice. well. <laughs> uh, and where can people find it? Um, oh, that one's in Swords versus Cthulhu. Uh, it's an anthology. And I just want to uh, give a, a shout out to, uh, there are a bunch of great authors um, in that. And almost all of the stories, uh, if you want to read about the Cthulhu mythos or some kind of take on it, but you want to read about it in uh, ancient China or you want to read about it uh, 
um, I don't know, like somebody took the song of Roland and used riffed on it in a Lovecraftian way. Um, wow. It's like all over the world. Uh, mm-hmm. Every like um, um, historical era, um, uh, every ethnicity. Like uh, the, there are a lot of uh, great stories and great takes on, on Lovecraft. That's awesome. awesome. I mean, that's it's cool to hear because like I. I feel like the influence that I've felt through cultural osmosis with Lovecraft has been one of sort of like love of the things, the ideas that maybe he that he started potentially. And but but I feel like I've heard people talk about those the, those sorts of stories and in, in sort of positive ways. And I think that that's gen, genuinely just from like you've said, the people who've taken that and run with it and done new things and changed it in ways. And it's just so, I don't know, it's so fascinating to me that this like horrible racist created something <laughs> that like is inescapable. Like it's it's like, I don't know, it's just, I mean, it's obviously it, unfortunate. It's had a huge effect on horror, I think for sure. You know, you know, the influence is there and, and um, I am glad that people are able to reclaim it in a way. And that brings me around to Lovecraft Country itself. Uh, what was your experience with this? Because I, I, I talked to you a little bit before we recorded, and you had said that you had read this book before, um, even before the show came out. So I'm curious what your thoughts were on it then and, and now um, as you've been sort of watching the show along uh, as it's been coming out. A lot of times I find out about books after they've come out. And this is one where I, I saw the title and I thought, oh, that must be marketing to me. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And then when I found out that the perspective was going to be uh, um, this this uh, black family in Jim Crow era America, I was like really intrigued. So I'm very excited, uh, and uh, I think Matt Ruff did a did an amazing job. I re- I remember being a little uh, at some point I discovered uh, before even reading it that he was a white author, and I was a little concerned about that. But I I think he uh, and I think you all touched on this in your first episode. I I'm. Um, I'm a Japanese American. I pass white passing. I'm not the person to speak on the black experience at all. So from with that caveat, like I think he did a pretty uh, amazing job of uh, making me uh, both love the the horror elements, the Lovecraftian elements, um, but also have kind of a more of an entryway into um, the experience of, of black Americans now and, and throughout history, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, as a white person, this it's it's very entertaining to me. And I think also putting me in situations that I could never have been in in the first place and, and sort of giving me that perspective in ways. Um, so for for that for those reasons, I, I think he succeeded. But it's working for me as a story and I think um, making me think about ther- certain aspects of the country in ways that I think are important. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm putting you on the spot here, Remy, but we, we got a little bit into a philosophical discussion about who gets to tell what stories? And uh, I know it's kind of a hot button issue, but <laughs> do, do you have any any thoughts on that? And and whether or not mm-hmm. you feel like this is a story he should be able to tell? Um, yeah, I think we we kind of weighed in last time, but I'd be curious to know if you had any thoughts that you were uh, dying to get out there. <laughs> well, I'm really glad I listened to the uh, the, the previous episode, <laughs> um, but uh, um, I think you one of you uh, hit the nail on the head in that. Um, um, I think you affirmed his telling of this experience, but also kind of paused at uh, you're not sure if he's the right person to be telling the black experience, right? Mm-hmm. It's one thing to have black characters. It's another thing to say, 
now let me share with you the experience of being uh, black in America uh, and the, you know, what it's like to, to be on the receiving end of, of day in, day out microaggressions and, 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 you know, more direct threats to your life because of your skin color. So given that, I'm really glad that, um, that, that Jordan Peele, Misha Green, actually it's Misha Green really, right? Uh, and yeah. um, have uh, done such a good job. And I know we're not going to talk too much about the show, but, but I feel like it's given them something to work with, right? And then to add on their, um, their layer, their experience to retell that. And so um, I think that that's, that's amazing. Uh, that that we have that ability to kind of, well, I mean, that's what you all do, right? Is this ink to film? Like somebody starts with the, the 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 written work, and then somebody else makes it into their own thing, adding their experiences and their creative powers, right? So uh, I think that that part of it is done right. Like the worst thing would be the other way around. A black author writes this, and then a white oh, uh, producer and writer and uh, and cast, right? Like, and honestly, that's like that's like the history of Hollywood, right there, right? right? That's yeah, like right. that's what's been done for such a long time. Yeah. So yeah, to see the inverse is nice. Yeah, so I'm I'm super excited about how that's uh, gone. The, but to answer, I guess the the do I feel um, I definitely could not have written this. Um, and many kudos to, to Matt Ruff for, for doing the research. I've, I've seen, um, uh, black reviewers, uh, give him a, uh, kudos for, for really, uh, putting the effort in to, 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 uh, probably with sensitivity readers and to do his research and, um, I don't know if that answered your question fully. But. <laughs> no, I think it did. And, and you know, I, I think it comes across that he did his research for sure, knows what he's talking about. Um, and he is a bolder man than me because I don't think there is any amount of research I could have done where I would have felt confident enough to put out a book like this. Um, but I am glad it exists for all the reasons you said. Um, and that all that being said, I think let's move into the stories themselves. Um, and then we can sort of discuss as we go. We can touch on the show a little bit. Um, we've watched the first five episodes, um, James and I. I don't know where you're at in the show, but like, so we, some of this stuff has been covered in the show and some of it hasn't, um, which we might touch on a little bit as we go. Um, but next week, you are actually going to join us again when we finish out the show. So if you like having Remy on, definitely tune in next week because he's going to help us finish out the show and we'll make all of our comparisons and we'll even take a vote at the end of the episode. A new thing you didn't do last time is we're taking a vote at the end of our coverage on what was the better version. So we will save that to the end of the of next week's episode. Um, all right, so I'm going to read uh, summaries for each of these stories as we go, just so we can remember what happens in them, and then we can launch into a discussion. So Hippolyta disturbs the universe. Hippolyta finds a secret compartment in one of the rooms in the Winthrop house containing a book and a key. The key gives an address for an observatory in Warlock Hill, Wisconsin. Hippolyta, having a lifelong passion for astronomy, decides to take a trip out there to see it. She finds the observatory and is able to get in with the key. Once inside, she discovers it contains no telescope, just a control console containing 64 windows, each displaying a three-digit number and a button. She soon discovers that by changing the numbers in the windows and pushing the button, a scene is projected inside the observatory from random places in the universe. There is a door frame on the other side of the observatory, which she suspects would let her walk out into a random place. The book she found included 64 three-digit numbers, so she dials those in and pushes the button. It displays a white, sandy beach. 
Hippolyta goes through the doorframe onto the beach and discovers a house a distance off. Investigating, she is captured by a woman named Ida. Ida explains that she and several others have been taken there nearly 20 years ago by Hiram Winthrop, furious with them that his son had run off with one of the maids, and he was going to keep them all there until they told him where his son was. To show them he was serious, he left them there and said he would come back in a few days. He never returned. Ida destroys the book and the 64-digit location written in it, and she eventually lets Hippolyta leave, but makes her promise to destroy the key, claiming she wants to stay and be left alone. Hippolyta does leave, but she does not destroy the key. All right, so a lot goes on in this story. Um, mm-hmm. What were your thoughts on this one? Let's start with Remy, since he's the guest. Uh, I just wanted to say, first of all, um, if you're listening and and uh, you didn't want to read the book for a class... Uh, Luke's summaries are great. <laughs> you can get just enough. Uh, uh, like, it's the perfect balance of detail well, and, 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 and summary. I, I did not uh, write the summary. I will come clean. This is not my, this oh, is not my okay. work. <laughs> well, and then you have all the discussion for your essays. Um, that we do, that we do provide. <laughs> yeah, this one, um, this one, I think, I feel like I've been heavily influenced by the show more than the other stories. And so it's really, uh, I think, transformed how I view uh, Hippolyta uh, compared to the past. I, I love that everybody in here, uh, not everybody, but most people in this family are nerds. Mm, um, and yeah. I, I think you touched <laughs> on this. They're, they're all so literary or deeply scientific and and... There were, uh, in high school, I remember I wanted to go into to astrophysics and I was excited by Carl Sagan. And, and so um, uh, Hippolyta is a, a character in, in that way that I can uh, really relate to. Yeah, I really like that about the story as well. And, and something that I feel like should have been more clear to me was that each character was going to have their own adventure. But it wasn't until the second half of the book that I really realized like each character has their own adventure. Yeah. And it and at first I was like, oh man, we get to spend less time with certain characters and but I, I having finished the the book now, I really appreciate that each character has a moment sort of in the spotlight to perform and do all like like be their own character, show some backstory, um, you know, what what makes them tick, and then be put up against this sort of like their own version of this this I don't know, existential dread. And all of these stories have had, um, you know, metaphorical parallels to things like awful racial things that had happened in, in like Jim Crow era. And I, this was one that, that I was, I was kind of stumped with. I was like, what uh, other than like obvious horrible racism going on where like these people are being like taken away from their homes. Is it, is it sort of the metaphor of like people being taken from Africa and taken into America and like, made to live there and like under you know I, I was just i was trying to zero in on sort of what this what this story's uh moral moral core mm. is do you guys have a, a take on that I, I have i have a thought so one of the things that struck me about this story was it, it's another example um of a career where black people were excluded and ha- and continue to be excluded um this sort of science um especially at this time period it was it was sort of inaccessible to someone like Hippolyta. And yet she has this passion for it and this talent for it. And we see her sort of 
trying to break through and be able to uh, express that. And we get this this story about her actually naming Pluto Pluto, but it, it, she is beaten out because a uh, a white woman is able to send in a telegram or a, 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 their their daughter is. Um, and the telegram beats her. And, and I thought that was an interesting showing of like socioeconomic problems of like, that's not something yeah. that she could do. She wouldn't afford to do that. Um, so all the ways in which the, the systems um, keep people like Hippolyta out of these sorts of professions and, and just how tragic that is. Um, and then her sort of triumphantly going on a literally cosmos spanning adventure um, is sort of a, you know, a, a refutation of that. And uh, I, I also have to point out going through a portal, which is something I said last episode. <laughs> um, I said, yeah. oh yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if they go through a portal and they're in a strange new world or whatever. <laughs> and, and that happens here, although it was a little different than I described. Um, I was pretty excited to see that the very next story I read, someone went through a portal to another land. <laughs> so specifically people being taken in and left on this other planet mm. is what I'm wondering. Like that, that's what, what is that sort of commenting on? people being left by Winthrop. So like, what, what does that represent? Because the only thing I could really think of, like I, like I was saying, is sort of like people being taken from their homeland and forced to live in, an, in a new area and like, you know, mm. family and friends left behind, all of that kind of thing. I, I did also note that uh, there was some talk about how uh, Winthrop might have been setting this up as a prison for one of the Braithwites, right? Like, I think it's the elder Braithwite. And he had sent them there almost as like advanced servants to be to right. to like make it easier on this on this uh, his enemy. Oh, uh, the white man's exile they called it. Yeah, which really shows me like the value he granted his his white man. Yeah, right. And and it also reminded me of the sort of the Egyptian idea of like killing the slaves to be the slaves of the pharaoh in the afterlife. Right. Um, Theoretically, that happened. At least that's what I've read. So, it, and it was similar here. It was like I'm gonna I'm gonna banish you to this horrible life just on the chance I'm gonna send my enemy there. Um, it just it was it, it was such a disregard for these people's lives. Um, it was quite staggering. Um, and yeah, I think that all ties into to what you were touching on there, James. Too. Uh, the I I do want to say also the stuff you were talking about Hippolyta, um, inner element. Just just hearing about uh, her love of astronomy. How she would go to different observatories uh, growing up, and like whether she was accepted or not, she would like try to figure out ways to to go there and and experience these things. Uh, the group of people that she eventually that she eventually meets that sort of embrace her in that in that um, way, and uh, how it all comes to play a part. Because I think all of us at some time or another have been fascinated by astronomy, and then thought like, how you know how could I possibly study this and still make money in some way? You know, because that really is a, a yeah. real struggle, I'm assuming, for that for that profession, because it's like you have to... It was in my top three of uh, degrees I was thinking about going after, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I took an astronomy class in, in college, yeah. and, like, it was awesome. It was so cool. Um, learned a lot, and, and it's so, you know, just the, uh, the perspective you get thinking about how massive the universe is and all the things in it, it's, mm -hmm. it's always been a lot of fun. Well, and, and that, that's tied to the cosmic horror element too, right? Like the, that's the cosmic of the horror, right? Like the, the, the idea of being so minuscule in, in a massive universe, I think is tied to that style of horror. And then we even see these sort of, there's like a bizarre creature on the beach and, it's it's kind of they don't really describe it very well and it, it like maybe kills one of the people and and i don't know that that part felt very i don't know i haven't seen the lighthouse but i assume it might be kind of like this but on another world <laughs> 
<laughs> Maybe, yeah. <laughs> well, I can see. I can oh, see some geez, that yeah. that is a horrifying movie. Um, I, that movie's awesome. <laughs> um, As the only one who hasn't seen it on the on the podcast, I'm, I love that I'm the one making the reference. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's interesting that I keyed in more to the first half, I think, and the the uh, then then to the second half, and and I think the the two elements her identifying with her love for for astronomy and astrophysics uh and uh i was also thinking about this is one of the few places in the book where you do have uh white groups accepting uh hippolyta right so or hippolyta um so you you have the um the scientists at palomar and i think the the students at at swarthmore uh where my daughter graduated from Oh, wow, that's awesome. Uh, it's, it's a Quaker uh, uh, established university, so they, they had much um, uh, radical equality as like a, a founding uh, value uh, for the university. So, um, but, uh, and so I don't think that's an accident, actually, that, that she ended up at Swarthmore and was accepted uh, mm. to, go, to, to um, come in uh, to the observatory. Um, but... This is at a time that I think overlaps with a lot of the stuff that's happening, part of the history in the Hidden Figures. Um, I don't know if you you all read um, that uh, book, uh, which was also made into a movie. I've seen the movie, Um, which is which is sort of my my mo. Is like I've seen the movie. (laughs) Maybe we'll cover that one. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. The book is interesting because I think it has a little bit more. I don't know if it's cynicism or historical realism, but a lot of the reason why at the national level we started really as a nation fighting racism is because of the Cold War and because uh, how we treated blacks was something that Soviets were using in their propaganda. Like, oh, you don't want to be, look what happens when you're in capitalist America, you know, like the, you're, you're all equal here. So there was a sense of that and there was a sense of like we needed all the talent we could get no matter where it came from. And I'm going to use like kind of the cultural attitude of the time, even if it comes from women or um, Mm -hmm. other races, right? Non-whites. And so so there was a lot of pressure on the South coming from the national level to like, hey, you need to just get rid of this racism already. Like, you know, look for talent and merit. And so I, that's part of my overlay as I'm reading through this chapter is some of that, that, that history. And I'm thinking like the, the, whether it's an ideal or whether it's cynical that, oh, hey, science, you know, well, uh, respect for uh, any contribution, objective uh, intelligence and research and regardless of where it's coming from. I like that because it's like knowledge being the an equalizer. You know, it's like if you show the merit, it doesn't. It shouldn't matter. And and that's I, I like that idea. Obviously, that and it's it's interesting to think like NASA because we're you know we're down that path now. I think I think NASA was was sort of at the some of the forefront. I don't want to you know I don't want to speak out of turn. I don't know fully, but I do I do think that um, at some point NASA switched over and started realizing that like having having women astronauts, having multicultural, just all, all types of people as astronauts eventually became um, kind of the norm in a time I feel like it wasn't the, the same in, in all different fields. Um, and again, I don't know the, the data on that. I'm just, I'm just sort of spitballing well, here. 
I think that the the story also outlines a world where that may be the attitude for the students there, but the systems aren't in place to provide for the poss- the opportunity, right? Like the the socioeconomic yeah. reality is that she can't afford to go to these universities and afford to to even access the knowledge in a way that they do. She has to do it sort of independently and then um, is forced by her situation to not be able to pursue uh, this, you know, fairly not lucrative career um, because she she can't afford to not make money immediately. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah. I think the systems had to catch up to make it possible for people to to actually achieve that because there was this kind of myth of like the meritocracy of like, oh, if your ideas are good enough, you're going to be here. But then people were unwilling to look at all the other things in place that were keeping people out. Definitely. And still are. Because it's like yeah. this idea of like access to knowledge. And, and you know, you think of like low income areas and, and the educational, the education departments in those areas specifically. The kinds of resources that are poured into to more rich and affluent areas. Um, and then, uh, you know, what, what you see in sort of more inner city education backgrounds that you see you see the money being poured into rich white neighborhoods um so the you know even now with with covid and everything like um there were there were school districts that were giving out laptops to students and stuff like that and some of them absolutely could not afford to do that right okay so the next one is jekyll and hyde park ruby is approached by caleb braithwaite with a proposal he needs someone to do odd jobs for him and also keep an eye on the winthrop house In return, he will give her a potion that will turn her into a beautiful, red-haired white woman for a period of time. Ruby tries this and discovers it is real. She explores parts of Chicago as a white woman with freedom she never would have had as a black woman. She agrees to work for Caleb in this fashion. One of the jobs he has her do is attend a meeting of representatives of different sorcerer lodges from around the country. In disguise as the redhead who Ruby has named Hillary... There, Caleb proposes to each lodge that they join forces, form a sort of union between them, to share knowledge and help each other. When asked who would lead this union, he suggests that they all meet back in Chicago in a few months on Midsummer's Day for a contest. Whoever is the strongest alchemy to display to the others gets the title of their leader. Later, Ruby discovers that the potion is being made from the blood of a woman in a coma, who Caleb keeps nearly frozen in a glass coffin in the basement. Ruby says she wants nothing more to do with him, but cannot bring herself to leave. The story ends with Caleb asking her to be sure of what she wants. Okay, so this is one of my, this was one of my favorite episodes. This was my favorite episode of the first five we we watched. And I was really excited to get the story version of it. And there are some differences. Sure. Yeah, I really enjoyed uh, uh, this chapter um, from the, the opening line, New Year's Day, Ruby woke up white. it's like um uh you're definitely like hooked from from the first sentence um it reminds me of the uh, metamorphosis story right where you he wakes up as a turning into (laughs) an insect but this is instead a white woman (laughs) (laughs) um you know how each of the chapters seems to cover a a slightly different like subgenre almost right you had your heist story uh, your, you know, your Indiana Jones um, uh, pulp story, and uh, um, more kind of traditional Lovecraftian cult-like story. And this one, to me, is um, it's part Kafka, but also part like spy story. Um, mm-hmm. Like there's a little bit of uh, uh, I, I love uh, Le Carre, and um, um, I don't know uh, some of his kind of 
um, uh, spy thriller novels. And um, so like the way that she's working the, uh, the room, right. And, mm-hmm. or, or sneaking into places and kind of being this, the spy for, for, um, Braithwaite. Um, uh, I found that, uh, kind of fun. Um, but the reason I provide that, it made me think about, um, one of the things that, uh, you do when you're trying to get someone to spy for you is you give them an opportunity to morally compromise themselves in a small way so that they can morally compromise themselves in a big way right Mm -hmm. so and i feel like that's what that's one of the angles that braithwaite has here i'm going to give you some of this file i'm not going to tell you where this file this potion comes from you know Mm -hmm. until you've like you're you are complicit you're fully into this and I love that Ruby that we get this we get this line. I'm gonna butcher it, but basically it was like you knew that this was the case. You knew that there was more to this than like it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't gonna be something that was completely on the up and up. It wasn't gonna be something that was that was clearly good. She she had this feeling the entire time that she reveals to us at the end when she does find out that there's like a darker sort of side to this, and that's that you know she knew all along but was willing to sort of ignore that voice in her head so i was struck by the the difference in reading this story versus viewing it um for me and that was that there's a strength that fiction has that you can't quite get in my opinion in film and that there's a level of interiority you get um and the the descriptions of what it was like to wake up white was really striking to me um i thought he really really well th- uh thought out by matt ruff um i don't know if you would like actually feel a difference in the sun on your skin but i suppose you might and i thought like that kind of thing was really interesting something i hadn't really thought about in the show um the way that the, he at first it's like uh he's you know she's uncomfortable in the new body and finds it kind of ungainly and the differences in size and dimension um all really fascinating and, and that that's something that like fiction does really well is like puts you in that mind and puts you in that headspace. And, and it's something that, uh, I really enjoyed reading, um, just the, for the novelty of it. Although I couldn't help but think this is a white guy writing a story about a black woman experiencing what it's like to be a white woman for the first time. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, so many, so many, uh, tight ropes being walked at once. <laughs> um, I did want to ask one particular thing that, that I noticed, so Hillary is discovered, uh, who she calls Hillary, um, in the basement in a glass coffin, which I don't know if you remember in our uh, Snow White coverage, Snow White, we talked yeah. about how that was a thing. And not only that uh, Brothers Grimm story, but several others, this sort of gla- woman in a glass coffin, I think comes up in a, in a couple different different stories. And I wondered if he was trying to make some sort of statement about that, like, is Ruby experiencing what it is to be a white woman, but also be used by a man in, in a way that maybe white women had traditionally have also been used? Uh, I wasn't really sure where he was going with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't nail that down either. I'm not really sure. Um, I think one of the interesting things that are, that's introduced is uh, Braithwaite says, Caleb Braithwaite says, you know, she is continuing to live through your experiences. And that like added added level of like what's going on here because it's it's like is this is he is he telling the truth is this person actually going to like be stuck like this forever and is this actually 
something helpful. But even in that way, it seems really sinister and dark and, and, uh, I don't know. Yeah. And, and, and then, you know, going forward the, the, we're sort of left at the end of the story with like, who do you want to be? Like what, what decision will Ruby make? And from here, mm-hmm. I, I have an angle on that. Um, um, these, last few chapters um uh, up until the end um caleb braithwaite is presented it's really interesting how he's being handled as the main antagonist and uh, villain right uh Mm -hmm. he's um like these explanations uh that he's providing assuming he's telling the truth and i actually actually believe him i actually don't Mm -hmm. don't think he's necessarily lying i think I think he thinks he's a good guy. Yeah. Um, right. I think a lot of the best and... films do, right? And I, I get that vibe <laughs> from him for sure. Well, and it makes me think of it makes me think of like like um well to do people who think that they're they're doing best for for black Americans. Yeah. yeah. And and what that represents to like actually what how black Americans feel about that when he's thinks he's the good guy and still, you know, and still taking advantage and still doing all this stuff. The, the thought occurred to me that this is corporate America. <laughs> this is the culture and ethics of corporate America. It's okay for me to, to build a Starbucks, right? A kitty corner from, a um, that mom and pop coffee shop that's been running for three decades and is their livelihood, right? Uh, that's just good business. Uh, in quotes in quotes Uh, (laughs) that's not evil i feel like that's caleb braithwaite is he's he's not evil he's just in fact he wants to bring this new way right he wants to to move them past uh oh i'm sorry one other thought that i had along these lines was um i'm reading a book on the reconstruction era um and you had all these northerners coming down uh, afterwards saying hey we're going to convince the landowners, the former slave owners, um, that, you know, capitalism, like like cheap labor is what you want. Um, this is this is the good way to go. And they they mm-hmm. they came in thinking with high ideals that every person will own their own labor, you know, black or white. It didn't matter. This was equalizing. Um, and so I, I feel like, you know, rewind a century and maybe Caleb Braithwaite would have been one of those guys like, Hey, <laughs> let's, let's build a factory. Let's pay a bunch of people, um, uh, lower than subsistence wages. And it's a better way than slavery. You know, I, he, we're not that racist. We're not that bad. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. And, and he, uh, the way he pays the sort of reparations money, um, in, in the earlier story. And one of the things that kept striking me, and, and it does come back later on in the book, is that he he wants to be sort of an ally or, or position himself as one, right? Like, I'm on your side. I'm helping you out. Yet you'll note that in every story, in every appearance, he is in control. And that's the one thing he is unwilling to give up. He doesn't ever want anyone else having any control. And when he does seem to give Ruby control, she even starts to pick up on, like, he probably is just playing with me and making me think I have control. Because she picks up on, like, that's how this guy is. He always yeah. has to be in control. I wonder, in in some ways, um, you know, we're talking about, is Matt Ruff the right person to tell the story of the Black experience? Mm. Um and there's some question about that, right? That it's it's good to to 
to interrogate that. Is he the right person to, to display um, systemic racism shown through white privilege? Absolutely, right? Right, and I think he, I think he hits on that a lot. Yeah, it's kind of like the, the the fakeness behind it. Yeah. So I, I actually think Caleb Braithwaite, for most of the book, is really well done in that way, in that he. Mm-hmm tries to make him like 80% sympathetic, you know, and 20% bastard. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I did like uh, when, when Ruby says, you want to be the Al Capone of warlocks. I thought that was a great line. Um, and, and it really, it really spelled it out for me in a way that I wasn't like quite there yet. But when she said that, I was like, oh, she nailed it. And then, you know, it, he is, he's consolidating power and he's trying to be everybody's friend. But he is. He, it's a power grab, and he all he wants to do is is be the head warlock, and you know what I mean in America. So in that sense, it's like he's not a good guy, and I think she's telling us that there. He yeah. says he wants to be the Frank Costello, right? Yeah, that's, that's, his, his, response. that's his response. And I don't know yeah. enough about about Frank Costello to know how he was different from Al Capone. Neither do I. Uh, <laughs> yeah, me either. Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> that's probably why she didn't say him. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so yeah, and then I think it's also funny that like all of his all of his things that he dangles or uh, many of them are 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 just expressions of like I will give you this deed to this house or I will give you all this money. What what will it cost you for for you know I will open up my pocketbook and I'll pay you this money. And then he also it always comes with strings. And he's like, I remember I gave you that money. Uh, and, and and I love later on, I think it's Montrose, uh, or maybe it's George, I'm not, I'm not sure, uh, says, you know, that's our money. That's not, you know, you gave it to us, but it, you gave us what was owed. Um, and I think very pointedly says, like, we don't owe you anything for that, um, which is not something I think he realized when he gave him that money. He really thought, like, <laughs> now they're going to be in my debt and they're going to they're gonna really like me and they're going to do whatever I want. So next up, we have the Narrow House. Caleb Braithwaite asks Atticus and Montrose to find Henry Winthrop, the son of Hiram Winthrop. Henry took some of his father's books when he ran away, including his notebooks, and Caleb wants them. Atticus and Montrose embark on a journey to Aiken, Illinois, where Henry is rumored to be. However, they soon find that since Henry ran off with a black woman who used to work at his father's house, they were both killed by a racist mob. At their house, Montrose meets the ghosts of Henry and his wife's family, who relive the last day of their lives every day, including the murder. Montrose finds Hiram's books, but decides to tell Caleb that they found nothing there. Okay, so the narrow house. Um, yeah, I guess that's what happens. We get we get we get a, a, a really kind of strange story with uh, with this like almost a portal into the past. And, and this conversation with with Henry Renthrop, which was really fascinating, and touches on the Tulsa uh, fires, um, which we we've talked about in a previous episode, but really uh, just remarkably talked about here, in a, and I thought really affecting way. Yeah, I mean, getting the actual sort of like perspective of a child wanting to be involved in this and fight back and like be a part of the community. Montrose um, as a child, and yeah. Montrose as a child, yeah, and um, you know. I already I've already said that that I'm very f- newly acquainted with this uh, this piece of history and uh, I actually saw a tweet recently it was just basically talking about how HBO and and in general is doing more for more for education on the Tulsa massacre than education systems did and, and all that kind yeah. of stuff and it's just crazy to see um so so you know, that that's fresh in my mind from Watchmen and then coming into the story and getting sort of like, I don't know, a written, like you said, there's sort of an 
introspective element to to being in a situation where he's seeing his father he's seeing his father like fight for the community and then also the fear in his father at seeing his son in this scenario and like wanting to run him out of here and um and then there was this really poignant moment where it was talked about like the fear of if you're gone and this this situation still going on you can't protect your son you can't be there to yeah. protect the people you care about um, and I think that's so universal, you know, this idea of like being there for the people you care about. And, uh, yeah, it, it really, uh, it really affected me. I actually wrote, uh, down that quote, uh, that's the horror, the most awful thing to have a child that the world wants to destroy and know you're helpless to help him. Nothing worse than that. Nothing worse. And then Henry Winthrop, the ghost of Henry Winthrop, but leans forward hungry. He's like, that's <laughs> yeah. what I want. Give me that misery. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah, this it's so weirdly creepy. Vampiric so creepy. <laughs> ghost. Uh, this story, yeah, I mean, the scene where Montrose's father is carrying him, and, and I, I loved, because I thought it was brilliantly written, but also it's so tragic, uh, the way it's described that that he thinks that they missed because his father yeah. doesn't break stride and just keeps running with him. And it's only when they get where they're going and he sets him down and then collapses does he realize he was hit. And um, it was just so tragic. And then um, there was an exchange where Henry says something like, I wish I had a father like that. And he said, uh, Montrose says, I, I don't have a father like that. That's the point. You know, he was killed, you know. Um, and, and I just, uh, I love this, this, this story was really affecting and I, re I actually really like Montrose's character. Um, in, in the, in the book, I feel like I have a little more clarity on who he is. Um, we'll see maybe in the, in the show, I'll get that as we go. But, um, I, I really like Montrose in the book and I was really happy to, to get this story and to see like why he is the way he is, because he seems like one of the most intense characters, in many ways, yeah. and you can see why when he tells this story. I love that this story opens with him smacking a kid upside the head. <laughs> Stranger <laughs> right. kid. He doesn't even know him. Some He's random like, yeah. kid. <laughs> That's such a 1950s thing, right? Like like people yeah. like just like disciplining other people's children and stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah I have a feeling that was probably thing. a little bit of a... Uh, I think it was probably a little extreme, even in the fifties. Like just <laughs> that's like, Montrose, man. He is he is like uh, he's an eleven out of ten at all times. It seems like <laughs> this one. Um, one one thought that I had too is uh, structurally, this is like a lot of um, Lovecraftian stories, where okay, um, a lot of them are stories within stories. Like the someone is going to a place to hear what happened and to hear kind of a chain of maybe encounters with several people and stories kind of unfold. Uh, so this one uh, in some ways was uh, a lot like a lot of Lovecraftian stories where uh, a lot of things don't happen in this story. You just hear about things happening. <laughs> yeah. The, and the, another thing just like, no, I know people are familiar and I know I just talked about it. Just like how I'm new to this I, I wasn't familiar with this before 2019. Um, this this really happened. You know what I mean? This this yeah. this feels mm. like this feels yeah. like something that was written in fiction, but it was all entirely true. Like this white, I don't know, mob of racists came to like destroy a town of black people who were thrive because of their th their success or, the, or their just I don't know pure hate. But um, well, and they outline I think some of the like 
couple of things that happened where like somebody said that they were attacked and then the later like the, the the newspaper reported that her clothes were ripped but then they said they made that up later and like that all sounds factual yeah. to me like yeah. that, that actually happened yeah it so it wasn't just a black community it was mm-hmm. perhaps the most successful like in terms of wealth uh and middle class kind of uh upward mobility the most successful black community in America. Right. And so it wasn't just some isolated backwater town that had no, it was like, this was a smackdown, right? This was um, uh, the whites resented uh, and and felt that, that, I feel like there was so much hatred there uh, Mm -hmm. that was poured into that. to attack, I mean, and, and I think it's been called the Black Wall Street. And to attack that is a statement. You know, it's not just it's not just something that was on a whim. Like they they attacked that specific place, like you're saying, because they wanted to strike at sort of the the I don't know pinnacle or sort of like a, what you could see as a community that was doing really well. And and to strike back and say like, see, that means nothing to us. And in a pure I don't know move of hatred. Well, in power, right? Like, um, so mi- so much of racism, I-, I feel like, comes down to wanting to feel superior, and 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 viewing someone as other, and then viewing any success by someone who is other than you as some sort of indictment or attack on you. Um, and, and you know, unfortunately, this is still written large in our politics today, um, and it's it's disgusting. And unfortunately, it's like. Uh, the legacy of this is something that is so important to be talking about. And, and I'm, I'm saying it's unfortunate because I wish it wasn't the case, but um, I am glad that this uh, is being talked about more and shows like Watchmen and Lovecraft Country are, are shining light on it where, you know, someone like me who, you know, I felt like I knew a good bit, but I didn't know about it. And so that just really shows like growing up in Central Florida, they didn't talk about the Tulsa massacres. So I can tell you that much. What, what's scary is that... Um... Uh, I can't remember. I was watching a documentary, I think, and it was saying that blacks in Tulsa did not know that the Tulsa race massacre happened. Like, like um, in just recently, like they're like, wow. "What?" It, it's That's been crazy. so suppressed. That is so insane. Yeah, I, I was talking to you about this, uh, kind of a sequel, but it's, it's related. Uh, I was talking to you about this recently, James. Um, there was this movie called Rosewood that came out that I saw, and it was about this town in Florida where there was a massacre and they literally destroyed a town. Now, this was sort of a backwater, like, small town in Florida, but it literally was destroyed and burned to the ground. Um, and it was a black community, um, and it, it was this sort of same sort of thing about this like this racial tension just exploded, and they literally went in and started lynching people. And if it, if that film hadn't been made, um, I would not have known about it because like you don't ever hear about this stuff. Like it, it it swept under the rug, and people forgot about it. And the filmmaker even said that they the reason they wanted to make it was to remind people that this was a place that existed, and many people died there, and that something that in America, a lot of people want to just forget about this stuff. Um, and, and if you look, there's there's massacres like this that happen all over the country. And if you look up like your state, you'll probably find a few that have happened. So I did. I had something else specifically about this story I wanted to say before we move on. Uh, Montrose and Atticus's relationship is informed for me a little bit more because of 
Montrose's history with his father. Like seeing, yeah. seeing, I think Montrose and his memory of his father and the way he felt about his father informs to me like what he wants for Atticus, um, which I felt to be like a really strong way to sort of build both characters at the same time. And, um, you know, I, I think they're both like they're both more likable for it. It gives a lot of depth uh, to Montrose and uh, kind of opens up. He's been kind of a, as loud as he is, as abrasive as he is. You, you, he he uses all of that anger partly to 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 shield and hide what what the hurt inside of him, right? The the vulnerability. Yeah, I, I thought there was a really powerful description he used to describe what happened even to Winthrop and that that their house was burned down and attacked by simple men is what he calls them. And then I was thinking about the bullets fired at his father by simple men. And um, I don't know, there was just something profound about it's people that like you, you can, you sort of dismiss at your own peril because their violence has very real consequences regardless of how simple they may be it's it's interesting that there's this that is the blind spot that henry winthrop has right so it's where the previous story is about ruby awakening to the privilege that um a white person has a white woman has um um, this one kind of shows like a danger well here's a place where a white man with his privilege didn't realize the danger to the black woman he loves and the black child that is his own, right? Uh, he doesn't realize his own privilege hides him from the dangers of racism to those mm-hmm. who are near and dear to him. So even if you are a powerful ally and you can't get more ally than than to be a family member, I think, uh, who, who loves and wants to protect their, their family, his privilege still kept him from seeing the danger. Yeah. Until it kills him. (laughs) Right. Like it, it it does come to kill him still too, though. So he's not immune and he's kind of caught up in this. Um, I don't know. Very interesting. Very interesting. To see it framed as, as the spells and magic is, is also really, really, um, interesting oh, yeah. to me because it's 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 like we keep this is more you know the the idea of like the spell that's been put on the car to you know make them uh early on like the first or second story this idea of making them like unseen to police in the, in that specific car and then you know these people are protected because they have certain marks and this and that and and just to like boil it down to basically being actual magic because it is it's like it, it might as well be Mm-hmm. Um, in, in everyday life. Uh, we can't pass this up without uh, um, Montrose with his very direct way saying, you want me to be, you want me to use my special Negro powers? You know, you want me to be oh your na- magical Negro? It's like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was so yeah. funny. And he's telling this to the wizard, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, perfect. All right, uh, so the next story is called Horace and the Devil Doll. Cousin Horace makes an appearance in this chapter after being approached by two detectives and Captain Lancaster. A comic book he drew was found near Hiram Winthrop's observatory, and they demand that Horace ask his mother Hippolyta about it and report back to them. 
Horus refuses to cooperate, so Lancaster casts a spell to prevent Horus from telling others about the situation and to cause inanimate objects to move. Soon enough, Horus begins to notice all kinds of cartoons and photographs grinning at him, and a doll attacks him. Horus manages to use Scrabble tiles to spell out to Ruby what happened, and Ruby tells Caleb. Caleb reverses the curses, and believing Lancaster thought Caleb ordered Hippolyta to snoop around the observatory. He thinks that Lancaster tried to kill Horus to punish Hippolyta for working with Caleb. Caleb devises a plan to kill Captain Lancaster. All right. Uh, so we got our Chucky story. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I kind of put myself in, in when I when I read the story, I kind of felt myself being put in the shoes of like my younger self who was really afraid of like, imagine reading this story when you were like, I don't know, 12 or younger 13, or something yeah, like Horace's that. Horus's age. Yeah, this this one definitely freaked me out. I, I'm I'm one of those people who doesn't like clowns. Not a yeah. big fan of human like dolls. <laughs> you know, I think I think it'd be terrifying to put yourself in the shoes of that child because it's like even to to contend with something like the unknown, like like uh, Lovecraftian elements within all these stories as an adult is one thing, but as a child, there's like a I don't know, there's like a imagination that's there as well and like the fear of the unknown is even is even is exacerbated and uh i think for for a child to to see a child also have to contend with like adult adult police officers adult yeah. you know um situations like that and having to like be an informant for your own family uh to so, to that you feel safe or they they're kept safe like that's a lot to put on a, a kid's shoulders. Yeah, there there was a conversation between the kids where they were talking about uh, something that had happened. And he was saying like, "Why didn't you sue?" And then the other one says, "The yeah. law is not for colored people, not down there." And and I thought that was a really po- powerful statement. And and also, I mean, that just kind of shows that that's true in a lot of places. And uh, then when he gets picked up by the police, who are themselves, you know, in it for other reasons, but still. The prospect of a young black child being picked up by police is just terrifying with the history of things that have gone on in these sort of circumstances. So I was definitely worried about him. Um, this character has also been gender swapped, I think, in the show. Um, I assume is is the I forget the name of the character in the show, but Di- uh, Diana different. The um, the thing that I found really interesting about this and 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 added to the horror is that. So many of the scary things are black or blackface. So Mm. you're moving through this world as a young black uh, boy. And um, there's the watermelons that have the racial slur name, right? And then he imagines or he has the dream of uh, of the heads of his friends, right? The... Yeah. Um, there's Black Pete, who I think is a blackface kind of like a uh, old Europe, like a, I don't know, I don't know, like a Krampus figure or something, like kind of a Christmas yeah, demon like figure. Um, and then there's the fully posable African pygmy devil doll, which is the thing that yeah. that, that really is. Uh, but anyhow, so so all of these things where his race is made to be the scary thing, the 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 demon, the um, I don't know, the boogeyman or whatever, like, um, yeah. and and I don't know. I'm just trying to put myself in in the. To, it's scary enough to have dolls come to life, you know. But what right. what happens when 
your race is also like yeah. the evil race, you know. But. Well, and speaking of dolls, I, I don't know what the study's called, but I'm sure you guys are familiar with it. This the study where they had children and then they asked the children to like pick out the doll that was the good doll and it would be like a black doll and a white doll were offered. And and many times a black child would would like go to a white doll. And that's mm-hmm. like what society's put on these kids. And like I wonder if this this is supposed to be that child contending with like what society has made him think of his own race. Yeah. I, absolutely. I I think that is it and it's the caricature, it's the 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 monster that white people see right and then it's chasing him and it's like yeah it's like i don't know like that that image is 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 literally chasing him uh in the form of this doll um and and, and once again it's kind of like taking something that's sort of metaphorical and, and making it literal in a way that i think horror can do really well each character has become a central figure in in their own story and then getting to see them sort of like interweave mm-hmm. and and interact in different ways i like seeing ruby as the character that horace gets to to cuz you know we in the back of our minds are like okay so what did ruby what you know ultimately with that other story where did ruby end up and where what's her headspace at when she's interacting with with horace who's you know moving the scrabble tiles together to tell her everything that's going on so they do at one point uh, mention Tars Tarkas and uh, some more John Car- John Carter Barsoom uh, yeah. references, and I, I I had that feeling like I was uh, Captain America going, uh, oh, I get that reference. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Which is always fun when we bring it back to to John Carter and Princess of Mars. It's interesting to think of Princess of Mars in the context of these characters in the fifties yeah. too, because like they were talking about like let's do the Battle of Barsoom, mm-hmm. and you're like. Oh, so it's like how we felt about Star Wars or how we felt about this <laughs> yeah. or that. Like, let's reenact that. So it, it is it is kind of interesting as sort of a period piece to see like different touchstones of media that we've also interacted with in that way. Yeah. All right. Final story. And then we can we can kind of have just free talk about anything from from uh, this book. The Mark of Cain. Everyone gets together to share their stories about Caleb. Caleb has a plan to get rid of Lancaster, but the family decides that they need to get rid of both of them. They decide to pretend to go along with Caleb's plan, but ask Winthrop's ghost for help. Caleb lures Lancaster into a room where a monster swallows him whole. Then Atticus uses magic to alter Caleb's Mark of Cain. The Mark prevents Caleb from entering certain places and from doing magic. They toss him into a truck and drop him off in Indiana and drive away. Okay. So this is the final climactic scene of the book. Uh, we have everyone getting together and making plans. Uh, what were you guys' thoughts on this one? Yeah, one thing that that was part of my experience of reading this, and it's probably completely unique to me. Um, I'm reading this as someone who used to be Mormon. Let me throw in a couple of quick caveats because I don't want to offend Mormon uh, listeners. Uh, but uh, um, I work with a bunch of people who are, who are Mormon, and I have good friends who are Mormon, and, and they're all um, um, the people who, who I know and work with uh, and love are just really decent uh, human beings. Um, that said, I don't agree with, <laughs> we don't hold the same beliefs. I think we, we mm-hmm. would uh, agree to that. And, um, and I definitely had a, a bad experience of 
the the institution of religion in this particular institution and um so that's context for um a few things that kind of uh um struck home with me um one is the all these fraternal orders um that are kind of masonic uh in origin right so you have the uh um shoot what's the name of the the prince prince hall freemasons i think is mm. the um the one that uh, montrose and george and and the others uh pirate joe um uh, belong to um and they form that because uh they uh oh prince hall formed that separate lodge because no white lodge would accept him right uh, historically you have that you have the uh order of the ancient dawn that's another fraternal order right they have their rituals they have their their um what they wear and um and um there's a lot of this in mormonism where there's if if you were a secular historian a, a believer would would not agree with this but a secular historian of religion would look at mormonism and say oh you stole a bunch of masonic rites and adopted them into your um into your your uh ritual and um and so i experienced uh some of that and the reason i'm bringing this up in the context of this is until 1978 if you were black you could not go into a mormon temple and participate in that secret in those secret rituals and in that order and it wasn't just the 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 entrance into that the those that ritual order um is how you get the highest blessing in mormonism which is for your family to be sealed together forever so that death will not break your family apart right you could not have that if you were uh, black and and the there were doctrinal kind of explanations for this uh so uh i'll try to make this really quick um no this this is all good uh, well one of them was the mark of cain and so that's why i bring it up here uh is that the mark of cain for many mormons was associated with blackness uh and if you were a uh a descendant of uh ham i think uh, which is one of the, the sons of noah um so anyhow there's this institutional racism combined with kind of these secret societies of like led by a lot of white dudes um and uh um and then uh this these people because of the color of their skin not being able to fully participate uh, in that um, all of that just kept kind of coming into my mind as I was reading through this oh and then there's that major major like the largest fraternal order and we think of fraternal orders as kind of weird today but like there was a time when if you were a man in America like through the late 1800s through the first half of the 20th century you belong to some kind of fraternal order uh, remember uh, the Flintstones and the the was it the Water Buffalo Lodge or whatever, and the Grand Puba, <laughs> that they that was a, one of these fraternal orders with their secret handshakes and weird hats and all that. So, um, anyhow, so wow. that's been kind of on my mind and, and kind of an element yeah. for me of of some horror and some 
reflection on institutional racism. I should clarify that Mormonism today, as of 1978, is fully open to to all races, and um, the Mormons that I know have been working very, very hard to... Um, we have a lot of conversations at my workplace, for example, on race. We have a book group uh, where we're reading some of the, the, the New York Times bestseller books on, on race. So anyhow, but this... This was here, and it's like mm. 1978. wasn't that long ago, you know. Yeah, uh, it's post yeah. post civil rights, post Jim Crow, you know. Um, and so this story, I think, is de- is is dealing with that directly, right? Like that's why it's called the Mark of Cain. We get a description talking about how uh, historically people have thought of the Mark of Cain, or there there are certain white people who thought of the Mark of Cain as being uh, something that is tied to blackness. And then um, that's also turned uh, turned back around. Uh, was it Ruby who said it? I'm, I'm drawing a blank on which character it was now. Uh, I can't remember. But somebody says that uh, if anybody uh, was was um, has the mark of Cain on them, it, you know, it would be the white people. Um, and 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 and, mm-hmm. and, I, it, I, and of course, Caleb is white, and he has the mark of Cain that is the source of his power here right like this tattoo that he has well it's because god put the mark of on cain so that people wouldn't kill him right it was a protection like he had done this deed he had he had killed his brother he had he had committed fratricide and but he was going to go about the land and and god was like okay i'm going to put this mark on you so people don't kill you that's really interesting because i i i didn't remember that um it makes sense because i haven't been you know, I, I haven't been religious for a very long time, but I, I didn't remember that, like, specifically. So Cain's punishment was to sort of go about the land and have to live with the fact that he killed his brother. That that I don't know what the nuance is of that. <laughs> oh, okay. That sound, sounds right. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm just, I'm wondering, like, how that how that sort of equates to people having the mark on them and what that means for, like, are they suffering uh, and also having powers and like what that what that means for the context of the story. If you play vampire the masquerade, it, it means that, that that you became the first vampire. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, so in this story, uh, let's get into the meat of what happens. We get the team up of all of our characters coming together, and I thought it was interesting how they actually formulate their plan and telegraph that they are going to um, betray Caleb. And I, and I thought that was an interesting choice as a writer, right? Like to, to decide that you're going to give away that moment. Now, he doesn't say how it's going to go down exactly, but um, he telegraphs it so that when we get there, we, we know that there is a, there is a uh, you know, a twist coming or, a, or a, 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 you know, a backstab by, by our characters on, on Caleb. Why do you think he mm-hmm. chose to go that way rather than let us be surprised along with Caleb fully uh, that, the, that there was something something being plotted against him. I don't know if this is the reason, but I really liked the situation that we got with all the characters coming together and being like, listen to this weird shit that happened <laughs> yeah. to me. And then the next <laughs> one's like, listen to this weird shit that happened to me. And then listen to this weird shit that happened to me. And it's like, that's race relations in America. Like if black people get together, they can relate to to all this crazy off the wall, insane shit that's happened to them. Um, and I thought that that was like a, I thought that that was a fun sort of galvanizing, like sort of mm-hmm. solidifying scene where all of them are coming together and then their unit going forward to, to carry out the plan. Um, 
I don't know if that's the if it was the intention to be like it's worth it to to give away the plan mm-hmm. if it means we get all these characters giving all giving all their uh, stories to each other. I just enjoyed I so I called this this chapter the uh, like the kind of the Ocean's Eleven chapter. You know, it's yeah. like because uh, yeah. a lot of times you get that right. You get the uh, uh, you maybe you know that the heist was pulled off, but you want to know how they did it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, right. Like I, I know heist movies and novels will handle that differently but but that's sometimes uh, the approach it changes the mood of the story so so i, I you know in, in, in the way i love to do in this podcast i'll pose a question and then i'll provide an answer myself for it um <laughs> i set myself up um so yeah i i i felt like it granted them agency and in going into this final story in a way where we felt like they were in control. They had the plan. This wasn't something that was just happening to them outside and they were getting duped. And then even if they had pulled the rug out from under under you, you would have been going into the story thinking that way and worrying. And instead of worrying in that way, it was like I was rooting for them and I'm like, "Ooh, it's coming. Any moment now they're going to they're going to get Caleb." And so it just totally changed the feel of the story for me and it made it a lot more fun like you said, like an Ocean's 11 type thing where I was rooting for them and on their side and excited to see how it would go down. Well, I I really like what you said there, Luke, cuz that brings it back to something else you said earlier and that's that Caleb is always in control, yep. right? So like so like giving the inverse of having these characters be fully in control against the 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 person who always is in control lets us as the as the readers say like okay so everything's gonna go perfectly because like everybody's teaming up we're getting to the end of the book and then um like you said it's maybe it it doesn't have like a huge oomph at the end but it is nice to have a sort of coming together moment and taking back of the control and like like you know going forward this is how it's going to be sort of thing i found um Caleb Braithwaite's uh, uh, kind of like deer in headlights moment to be a little bit like um, like when Darth Maul gets struck down. <laughs> like <it> was, <laughs> I, 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 I wanted there to be like a, a moment where he's like, well, I anticipated this betrayal. <laughs> but then they're like, but you didn't anticipate this third, second and third, yeah. you know, double and triple betrayal or something like I that. I like right? that. Yeah, like, I like that. Where they were just thinking like two steps ahead of him or something. Mm-hmm. It, it's, But yeah, just because of how in control and how, how like he's one of these super villains who just know, seems to know every detail and every response, right? Um, like like with the, uh, um, the Kabbalah book, right? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you got, I see you got that Kabbalah book. Like they they didn't pull anything over his eyes and yeah, uh, th- really every moment so. leading up to this he had always been a step ahead, right? Um, and, and this is where finally his intuition. There's even a line where it says like his intuition was right, but he didn't follow through with it, you know, and 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 ended up coming, you know, that ends up being the, his downfall. Um, and it's interesting though because it's like Atticus wants to be the one to do the ceremony. And he sort of demands, like, no, I'm going to do this. And Caleb, it's almost like playing into Caleb's, like, desire to make them feel like they're in control. And so it's almost like he's like, yeah, I'll let you do it because it's going to be in my own interest. So I'll let you think that you're in control, whereas they actually are in control. Uh, So I thought that was kind of a nice playing with that idea of, like, he's thinking that he's still in control, but he's really not. 
I also wanted to mention Ruby is interesting in this in this section, really, because she's also the only one who lies about what has been going on with her. Um, She does not admit that she's been being turned into a white woman and then continues to lie about it, shows up as Hillary um, to participate in all of this. And then even at the end of the story is still using the potions and, and doesn't seem to have let anyone in on this as something that she's doing, which I don't know. I, I thought that was like one of the characters where I felt like unsure of how to feel about Ruby and where she's at. And, and um, she seems like she is continuing to use this potion and continuing to use this privilege. Um, but I don't know. Like, I guess I, I wasn't sure how I was supposed to feel about it. What, what was your take on that? I feel like this is someplace where it would be really, really helpful to have um, someone who who's living in black America and who's as, as someone who's experiencing racism, like what do you, what choices do you make? Do you play along or do you fight back? Right. Yeah. And maybe that, that's what Ruby represents is that she's like, ah, you know, if I want the, the success uh, or maybe uh, for people of color who, who are, who are passing, right? Uh, so if there's a lighter skinned um, uh, black woman who can pass as white, uh, but can kind of choose to emphasize mm-hmm. um, how to express themselves and how to move through society. Maybe, mm. maybe there's some of that in there. And again, I'm the wrong person to, to speak to <laughs> if that. If anybody has any thoughts on that yeah. and you are someone who would have uh, experience with this, I, we would love to hear them. And uh, definitely write in uh, inktofilm at gmail.com um, if you feel comfortable, of course. Um, but we would be very curious to hear from you. In the epilogue, it does seem like, for the most part, all the characters get a nice, neat ending as well, other than Ruby, because we get um, Horace is going to be able to go on adventures with Atticus, um, and anything for the guide going forward. Atticus and his and his father are like uh, together, and they're going to be going on and doing stuff together. Um, it just seems like overall, all of our characters came out on the other side of this this story. Yeah. Three hundred thousand um, dollars richer, and right, yeah. and and there's sort of isn't there sort of there's like a decision being made to like put it in a safe or yeah, there's they make a, they make a yeah. filing cabinet into a secret safe or something, yeah. Yeah, I think they they talk about Horace is watching all the money go in, and he's talking about like all the college that that they're going to pay yeah, for. Yeah, they're going to put people that. through school right, that's what it was. And, and all this yeah. stuff. Um, it, it is interesting yep. just that so you're touching on them going off on an adventure. But they're going on an adventure to the south, to Jim Crow land, um, is kind of what they just say. And I was wondering, like, is he setting up a sequel called Jim Crow land or Jim Crow country? (laughs) The sequel to Lovecraft country? (laughs) Um, Because we see Montrose, Horace, and and Atticus sort of setting off together uh, on a, a, it seems like a new adventure, I agree. Um, Also, George has survived the events of the novel, which I wasn't sure if he would. All the way through. Because we saw him, him die early on in the show. And um, it made me think, oh, he probably dies in the book. We just probably haven't gotten there yet. But um, no, he, he yeah, survived. Right. I, I had the reverse experience of like, why? Why they kill George? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was sad when he died. I just assumed it must happen at some point in the book, but it doesn't. Um, it, it, right. Do you have, I mean, I guess, yeah, yeah. I'm going to ask you now. Do you have any thoughts as to why they killed George in the show? What do you think? I I am still puzzling about that, partly because I'm upset yeah. about it. Um, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it puts the focus more I, I, on mantras, right? Like it gives him even more to be upset about, and it's his brother now. I don't know. 
Well, well, we can touch back on that when we get to the show. I mean, definitely Hippolyta Hippolyta and uh, Montrose, right? All have to to deal with. Absolutely. All right, so that's the end of the book, but I wanted to ask you each, just overall, what were your thoughts on Lovecraft Country, the novel, Um, this anthology series of sort of connected but disjointed stories in a way with many different cast of characters um i know it's difficult to separate it from the show but just to try for a moment to set the show aside what did you think of this novel james you want to start i enjoyed the story a lot um i like the framing device of it sort of being an anthology i like that we get the different characters uh as the heads of each story i like the lovecraftian elements i think i think the thing that i really love about it is the the parallels to jim jim crow era america and and the ways that like it can be this sort of like overbearing horror that's that's in the country and 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 has been since you know forever and uh i think i walk away wanting to read i want to read lovecraft but then i'm conflicted because lovecraft is 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 so sort of there's so much built up in there but i am excited because remy's recommending all well i will say at some point at some point, we're going to cover Lovecraft. Like, we have to. We're, yeah. We'll cover one of his stories that's been adapted or, or something. We'll get into him right. at some point. But even just on my own, like, I, I, I'm looking forward to, to diving into maybe someone who, that, like Remy was mentioning earlier in the episode, someone who's taken Lovecraftian mm-hmm. elements and sort of, you know, re, recaptured it <laughs> in some way. I, I have some recommendations uh, that I can oh, share okay. at some point. <laughs> okay. But, but overall thoughts on this, on this novel, Remy, what do you think of Lovecraft Country? If someone who's oh, asking you about it, like, what do, what do you tell them? Yeah. I don't uh, reread books very often. I feel like there are too many books out there to reread. I think this might be my third read of Lovecraft Country. I wow. really like wow. it. Um, it. It's what I aspire to write. So as a writer, I, I um, feel like... Uh, uh, Matt Ruff just has done an amazing job of um, bringing everything that is powerful um, that speaks to you from uh, Lovecraft and then uh, uh, st- like tackling head on everything that's wrong about Lovecraft. Uh, yeah. And so um, so that's that's one of the cool things about about Lovecraft Country is you don't have to read Lovecraft to enjoy Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, I'm read, living proof of that. You, <laughs> <laughs> you, you can read stories like uh, like Lovecraft Country. Um, the um, even it's interesting to compare to the show. I'm enjoying the show, um, but on this reread, I'm just reminded of how nerdy and how uh, literary, how board gamey. Like these are my people in a lot of ways, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, on all the the nerdy geeky uh, aspects, and and yet um, I'm also I feel like I'm a better person for reading this book because uh, while I'm being entertained by the Lovecraftian elements, I'm being absolutely horrified by the real world that are uh, uh, like Black American. Um, uh, friends and, and, and family members um, continue to to struggle with to this day, um, and so um, and I think the fact that here we are three p- 
people of white privilege are having this conversation that that's that's pretty amazing when a when a book uh, that's published largely uh, as an entertainment you know uh, item uh, brings you to these kinds of truths and 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 have you talking to other people with it. I think that's that's why I want to I want to write stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for me, I mean, I would echo what you guys said. Um, that's absolutely the case. Um, I also think it's really interesting how the the title of this book, um, I think, is an apt one, but it's also misleading. <laughs> um, and, and I think it's because this is about m- so much more than just Lovecraftian horror. There's so many other genres that get touched on this, you know, from sci-fi to fantasy, right, and, and, and to many other pulp genres. Princess of Mars is talked about almost more than any other uh, a title of anything, right? So it, it can almost be referencing that. But the reason I think it is an apt title, though, is because um, I touched on this, I think, in the first episode. The horror is the racism, and the racism is tied to the magic and tied to the cosmic element of just the oppressive. It's in everything. Inter- like characters who are not connected to one another are still embodiments of that central horror of the novel. Um, which is the racism. So in that sense, it, uh, I think Lovecraft Country uh, does work as an app title, and um, it's, just, it's it's a good novel. I, I was surprised by the uh, the tone of it. I, I was expecting more of a Lovecraftian dark dreariness, and, and it's really not that. There's a lot of fun in this novel. There's a lot of joy, and there's a lot of different kinds of stories. So um, surprising in that way. It wasn't what I was expecting, but I'm glad because I, I like picking up a novel and not knowing everything I'm going to get in there. You know, I was very excited. Um, and I am very excited to watch the remainder of the show, uh, with you two and discuss it next week. Um, thank you again for coming on Remy. Um, if people wanted to find you online, where can they do that? Uh, you know, I knew this question was coming up, and, and I've been kind of rebelling against social media and stuff lately. I know. That's so why I'm asking you I, and not saying, because I don't know. Like, what are, Do you still use any social media? <laughs> um, probably the, the best thing to do would be to reach out to me on Twitter. Uh, and uh, my name there is Remy Mura. Uh, and at me, because that's the only way. I'll, 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 I check my mentions, <laughs> like, maybe once every week or two. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I've locked down almost everything else. But you should yeah. follow him. He's, he's a great follow on Twitter. He won't he won't gum your uh, newsfeed up with a lot of tweets. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. This is so true. All right, but yes, truly, thank you for coming on. This was a lot of fun. And oh yes, you had your recommendations. That's right. Yeah, let's give let's give some recommendations. I love um, it. I wanted to, James uh, had mentioned that that uh, uh, maybe he wanted to read some some Lovecraft. That there's a lot of amazing amazing writing and you don't have to go anywhere near lovecraft's purple prose and and uh <laughs> and way more problematic uh um social problems <laughs> it's writing <laughs> but um if you're looking for short stories um ellen datlow who's the uh short story um editing queen of horror uh and she's got at least three anthologies that are just Lovecraft. Uh, one of them's called, uh, the best one's probably called Lovecraft Unbound. Uh, Paula Garan's another horror and dark fantasy editor. Uh, she's got one, I think it's called The New Cthulhu. Uh, but if you look for Paula Garan and, and Lovecraft, you, you should find something like that. Um, longer books, um, one by a black author, uh, Victor Laval. Uh, he's 
a really uh, amazing kind of literary um, uh, horror writer. Um, but he's got one called uh, The Changeling, which is a little bit less Lovecraftian, uh, but still powerful. But then he has one that's a play on Lovecraft called The Ballad of Black Tom. Uh, and the character is Black Tom, uh, not the cat. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and for, I don't know if you covered, I can't remember if you covered, I think you mentioned the name of the cat um, yeah. that, that Lovecraft used, that was the racial slur, uh, the N-word. Um, in the 50s reprinting, they started using Black Tom instead of um, oh. the original name. So, and I think Victor Laval then ran with that. Um, that wow. name and created a character. Interesting. So, wow. um, and then one um, novella by a, a woman who's one of the best writers, Kids um, um, Johnson, wrote uh, The Dream Quest of Velvet Bow, which is a feminist uh, kind of uh, takedown of a lot of the sexism in, in um, uh, Lovecraft's books and, and stories. So, uh, awesome. they're, they're all amazing in their own right. Like, even if you didn't approach them for the their kind of social response to Lovecraft, uh, they'd still be powerful uh, and amazing reads. So, so yeah, if you want to get more um, diversity in your Lovecraft uh, fiction, and we all should. Uh, thanks for those <laughs> yeah. recommendations, Remy, uh, and for joining us. This was an awesome episode. I'm so glad you got to join us, and we will be back next week to talk about the the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a, been a lot of fun. Thanks, Remy. See you next week. Yeah, we'll see you. So the election is approaching. It is very, very soon, so we just wanted to implore all of our listeners to make sure that you do vote. Make sure that if you can vote early, you do. Make sure that you have a plan to vote. All of that. Um, very important this year. Um, important every year that there's an election. Yeah. But particularly important, it feels like, right now, as I'm sure you're all aware and probably tired of hearing. But still, just in case yeah. you needed that little reminder. Most important vote of our lives, so vote for <laughs> Joe Biden. Yeah, vote for Joe Biden, please. All right. Uh, also, if you enjoyed this episode, let us know in the form of a rating and review, however you find us. Um, if you are on YouTube, give the uh, video a like. Maybe leave us a comment. That tends to help in the analytics. Oh, yeah, and subscribe. That would be great. Follow whatever, whatever uh, platform you use. Yeah, we're on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of those adding to film. Um, and please join the Council of Inklings. It's a great place on Facebook to interact with us. We post polls in there for upcoming uh, upcoming projects. We post any sort of news we see. It's just, like, honestly, a great way to stay informed with all the book and, and film-related material out there. And if you would like to show your support for this podcast even more, uh, we have a Patreon where we have a bunch of bonus episodes and extra content and swag that you can get. Various levels have different rewards. Check that out. It's patreon.com slash film if you are interested. Thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right. That's going to be it for this week. And until next time. Thanks for listening. Bye.